I also just really wanted to see a scene of like Immortan Joe eating salad because it's like it's only lettuce in that in that place. Like just, he's like walking through these rooms of hydroponic lettuce. And I'm just like, where is the canteen of the Citadel where Joe and all the war boys are just like enjoying a light green salad? Immortan Joe's like, I'll have the balsamic vinegar. <laughs> right, and the waiter's like, we have only House Italian. <laughs> And then Morton Joe is like, send him to the bullet farm. They have better options over there. And they like take the war rig and get a gigantic semi full of salad dressing and bring it back so that they have more options. Damn it. <laughs> this is what we want. <laughs> Choices for a better world. <laughs> This is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where our gang wins best decorated postmodern vehicles and most relaxed biker gang year after year. I'm your host, Nina. And I'm your host, Nat. And today we're talking about the 2015 George Miller movie Mad Max Fury Road, starring Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy freewheeling it across a post-apocalyptic Australian desert hellscape. So before we start in on Fury Road, we should probably give you a little bit of an intro to the world of Mad Max. This is sort of easier said than done, though, because one of the hallmarks of these movies is that they are super vague on the world building. The first movie, Mad Max from 1979, starts, according to the title card, quote, a few years from now. Um, It's a world that looks sort of like 70s Australia, except for the cops wear BDSM gear and the roads are thronged with biker gangs or bikies, as they call them. In the second movie, Mad Max, the Road Warrior from 1981, there's a slightly more expansive gesture toward explaining what the hell happened, which apparently has to do with some like old timey people fighting about oil for their steamships or something. Anyway, that movie introduces the great paradox of Mad Max, which is that in a world where gasoline is apparently scarce, everyone still rides around in guzzling tankers and V8 engines and heavy-ass armored vehicles, so whatever. Anyway, it also extends the BDSM gear to the bikies who have beautiful multicolored mohawks and assless chaps and just look so, so good. And the third movie has Tina Turner, who is a bomb to my heart, but it also digs in on this weird gasoline stuff and throws in some stupid orientalist vibes for good measure. And then tops it all off with an implied nuclear war or something. Max is the center of all these movies, and his backstory can be summed up pretty quickly. He's an ex-cop. He lost everything and everyone he ever loved to evil bikies, except for his awesome car. And he is very, very mad about it. Also, he is grizzled. He is white. He is violent. And he is alone. He is manfully, masculinely, dudefully alone. (laughs) So that brings us to Fury Road, the fourth movie in the Mad Max universe. The movie's plot picks up at some point later on during the apocalypse. In addition to gas shenanigans and nuclear whatnot, we have now added water shortage to our dystopian bowl. We meet Max Rakotansky, hanging out on a desert rock outcropping, eating lizards, and having PTSD flashbacks like he does. All of a sudden, he reacts to a sound we can't hear and speeds off, only to be run down and captured by a bunch of other folks in massive monster truck-style vehicles who take him back to their home in the desert. They've taken him for his car and also for his blood. He's a universal donor, and the Citadel needs fresh transfusions to keep its many white-skinned, suicidally committed warriors, the War Boys, alive. The War Boys work for and worship this authoritarian creeper named Immortan Joe, who controls the place, which is called the Citadel. 
It's a towering rock structure connected to a subterranean freshwater source. So even though it's in the middle of the desert, the citadel has huge amounts of fresh water and all that entails. Hydroponic crops, lush fountains, etc. In spite of the water, though, everyone there is sick, maybe with fallout, and covered in cancerous tumors. This includes the warboys, who expect to die young from their cancers and worship Joe as a god, fighting and driving for him in hopes of earning the honor of dying for him and going to Valhalla. When Max wakes up there, it's the last day of a supply run, when Joe sends his war rig, filled with water, to his neighbors at Gastown and the Bullet Farm to trade for supplies. The supply run starts well enough with Joe's war rig driver, a badass lady with one prosthetic arm who's named Imperator Furiosa, driving the rig. Furiosa quickly takes the rig on an off-road detour, however. It turns out she's trying to escape with all of Joe's wives hidden in the rig. She's taking them to the Green Place, the place where she was born to a matriarchal society and from which she was stolen as a child. Joe pursues them with Max tied to the front of a pursuit vehicle in order to keep feeding his blood to the warboy within. There are many, many chases, there are dust storms and fire tornadoes, all sorts of doings transpire, and to make a long story short, Max ends up sidekicking for Furiosa as she makes her way to the Green Place, meets up with her former mother, the Volvolini, and discovers that the Green Place, too, is now pretty much beige with no more good water or soil. So the whole lot of them turn around and storm back up to the Citadel, stopping along the way only to lose several members of their party and rip Immortan Joe's fucking face off, which is great. I've seen this movie twice now, but I've seen that part of the movie at least five times. And uh, and then they get to the Citadel and they take it over for themselves. Max, though, doesn't stick around for any of the ample hydroponic arugula salads that he has earned. He simply melts into the tumorous crowd and goes off to be an individual somewhere. <laughs> so that took a long time considering that the plot of this movie is basically just like, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in spite of that, I feel like there was actually a pretty big backlash. Like there was a lot of like love it or hate it response to this movie and specifically dudes on the internet who saw themselves as huge fans of Mad Max. Cause this was all kind of around the same time as Gamergate was happening. And there was this whole like masculinity on the internet thing happening in the early 2010s um and this movie was a little bit of an object in that because mad max fury road is so different from the mad max movies that come before Ugh, it is i mean the first time i saw it i remember it being this big moment of i guess commitment for me because i was such an avoider of media of this sort in the past and i remember at the time contrasting it with game of thrones Oh, yeah. Yeah. The thing that was really transformative and interesting for me was I thought I didn't like Game of Thrones because of the violence. Right. And it turns out that I didn't like it for deeper reasons that are not simply a revulsion of seeing blood or people getting hurt. And I never thought I'd be able to watch a movie like this and feel like I got anything out of it other than terror. Mm -hmm. And It was a watershed moment for me in understanding media and understanding my responses to other types of media for the past, you know, however old I was in 2015. But I'll I'll leave that unknown because I don't know how old I am now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even kidding, Nina. I live in queer time and people ask me that and I'm like, ah, it's going to take me a minute to calculate it. Which version of me, dude, are you talking about? (laughs) 
I can use like three. <laughs> With roots and tendrils and other times and places. <laughs> yeah, totally. Absolutely. I- I'm just a tessellating series of gnats. <laughs> Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> There's something really alienating about the idea of sitting in a room with a bunch of people while that's going on. Mm, like while watching the second episode of Game of Thrones or something. Yeah, yeah. Just watching this sort of gratuitous um, sensationalizing of a rape and everybody agreeing that this is what we're all doing right now and we're all watching this together. And yeah. on the one hand, there's the pain of seeing it on the screen. And on the other hand, there is the alienation of feeling the feelings that, you know, I personally feel when I see rapes in shows. Right. And everyone's watching it like this is what we all do. Right. Um, no, totally. Totally. It's kind of, it's, it reminds me of, you know, um, in the last episode, we were sort of imagining this like a group full of mycologists all thinking like kind of pleasurably about their associations with sex because of the way this mushroom smells like in this really positive way. It's sort of the opposite of that. It's like a bunch of people in a room, everyone is having different experiences in response to this. And all of them are, you know, kind of having negative, painful experiences in isolation together like yeah that that's totally it i feel like about watching these scenes that's so awful yes and the thing that i will say about fury road that was so different for me is you know i i hate seeing rapes i've seen enough shows you know i can feel it coming when it's coming up in a movie totally and in fury road there is a fundamental setup to the way the storytelling happens the way the action rolls out and the types of threats that are laid out that you know watching the movie that it is not coming. Totally. Totally. Yeah, it's 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 a hard thing to talk about. I feel like I really admire how Fury Road constructs a kind of a female gaze as opposed to the male gaze of the of the first three movies. That's what Angry Men on the Internet had a problem with because the Mad Max of the first three movies is this real like classic masculine icon. He's unkillable and and he's so strong and he's the best driver. And I, I'm sorry, I actually really love Mad Max the Road Warrior. Um, <laughs> like there's a scene where Mad Max, like this other guy has like set a trap where there's just like a snake hiding on this vehicle and Mad Max just grabs the snake and it's like he's the (laughs) man in charge of all of the snakes (laughs) that's an undersung aspect of masculinity good at snakes (laughs) like (laughs) you know like when you sign up for your masculinity card they're like motorcycles (laughs) like strength Mm -hmm. snakes yeah, like, no, totally. I'm like, after I get top surgery, maybe I'll get it tattooed on my chest, like, good at snakes. <laughs> Dude, people need to know. And you can be like Mad Max because he has all this stuff tattooed on, too. And, like, what is more masculine? <laughs> Dude, seriously, Road Warrior. So, again, that falls into a category of movie I typically wouldn't watch because I can feel the rape coming. It does have a gratuitous rape scene in it. Nina actually gave me a um, a time where I could skip past the rape scene. So I was able to watch it and just sort of delete that scene out of my experience of the movie. Did not detract from my enjoyment of the aspects of that movie that were great at all. Well, it doesn't actually have a plot. So <laughs> that helps. <laughs> it also shows like the lack of it being necessary for that to be in the movie. To feel all the feelings of that movie, which are 
snake grabbing and assless chaps. Like, <laughs> I just want to lift up that description of the movie snake grabbing and assless chaps as yeah, truly dude. just an ideal. Like, the, like, what is the utopian future? It's definitely going to involve both of those things. Like, <laughs> I sure hope so. And hopefully it'll involve more of the George Miller, the director of Mad Max, protagonists who are like badass women and less like scary fascistic guys in masks. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to live in a world where the only two choices are like the fascists in BDSM and the like super normies in like weird white football padding no i was like man they look like jedi <laughs> totally they like, do. use the force guys like if you had that at least it would be easier to get rid of these fascistic scary leather people who shoot at you with crossbows and are just resentful all the time they are they're so <laughs> resentful <laughs> they're also kind of beautiful i just like i mean sartorially i know which gang i choose oh my god they're so curated i was actually thinking about this i i want to give a shout Shout out to my uh, my barber, who is just an incredibly awesome person. And we were actually talking about apocalyptic stuff. And they were saying, I've been voted most likely to die in an apocalypse because I don't have any skills. And I'm like, that's obviously not true because mm. people need barbers in the apocalypse. And Mad Max is proof of that truth. Like, he gets his haircut in almost every movie. Max gets his haircut in every movie. People have mohawks. There is a general like curation of hair that continues even in these desperate situations where people like don't have enough water. It's like we need to look a certain kind of way, though. He doesn't need to eat. He doesn't need to pee. But he does need to, you know, occasionally groom himself so he can constrain the um, incredible output of his testosterone furriness. <laughs> yeah, but like the weird thing, though, and we're getting off on a road warrior tangent, but it's 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 such a right. hilarious movie in so many ways. Those people have such curated body hair, like especially what? the humongous zero zero hair is like that guy is waxed. He is. He is fully waxed. Yeah. Yeah. He's got like a hockey mask. Also, okay. So we can sort of tie this back to Fury Road by like mentioning the many things about Fury Road. They're just different from the ones before. Like people get sunburned in Fury Road. (laughs) (laughs) Right. They're all in the like Australian desert, like wearing nothing but like a few straps of leather. (laughs) And they're all just like, they're just like, I am a pale white lily flower. (laughs) I mean, but, you know, what's interesting about Road Warrior is you can really see the evolution from that movie to Fury Road. Mm -hmm. It's very similar in a lot of ways. And I feel like the difference is they intentionally said, let's bring in this. Were you saying a female gaze? Yeah, yeah. Have you ever read Laura Mulvey's paper on the male gaze? I mean, I think in a lot of ways, it's basically what you're describing when you're talking about like sitting in a room with people and watching a scene of like violence towards women that and or sexual violence. That's like there's a whole bunch of assumptions embedded in just the gaze of the camera, what the camera chooses to see and the way that it looks at it and the way that it's framed and contextualized that includes all of these assumptions about the subject position of the looker, right? The person who's looking. And in most movies, that person who is looking is male. So 
when it sees something terrible happening to a woman, the camera doesn't linger on things that would sort of explore and empathize with that woman or like show her to have interiority or like a specific experience of things that are going on. It sort of just like sees her as an object. And the Mad Max movies, the first three of them are really kind of famous for that. In like one of the things that they <laughs> that they're famous for is like women just really are objects in, in those movies. And like occasionally like there'll be a woman like in Beyond Thunderdome, Tina Turner, of course, is like the, the main character. It doesn't preclude there being like female characters, but those characters are all sort of seen through this lens of like valuable in as much as they are adjacent to masculine traits or to masculine needs and desires and not having like their own wills. And that's really where Fury Road begins because it begins with the wives running away with Furiosa. And when Immortan Joe discovers that his wives have run away from him, there's all these messages written across the walls. It's actually something I really appreciate about this movie because it's so insane. It's really hard to follow what's happening, but it does a really good job of characters every once in a while just like telling you where they are in the plot. Like, so like you look around at the walls and there's all these messages written on them being like, we are not things. And it's basically like, we have run away because you objectify us. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and there is the one older woman who's in there pointing a gun at a Morton Joe when he walks in the room and makes this discovery. And she reiterates that, like, <laughs> she's like, in case you didn't read it on the walls. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. not, they're not things. Like, women yeah. are not things, which right away is just like, I mean, that would never have happened in the past three movies. It just wouldn't have occurred. To, to anyone in the world of the last three movies that women aren't things. Yeah, it's so interesting because like I can see the evolution from the first one to the second one in some of the types of things that you see in both movies. You see like the big rig that Furiosa drives. There is a version of that in Road Warrior. Um, right. Again, you have this authoritarian, bullying, fascistic type of... Um, leaders guy in a mask coming to wreak violence and exploitation and death on people who are all trying to kind of work together mm -hmm. and there's an aspect to it where you can tell that those are themes that the director and the franchise are interested in and that it is in some senses it's like more interested in exploring those things than it is invested in perpetuating patriarchy and toxic masculinity mm -hmm. Be because in fury road you end up in a place where it's like oh we can explore a lot of these themes in a way that's even more nuanced and even more exciting when we bring in another way of looking at these issues that isn't just male gazy and objectifying of the women who would inevitably be there in an apocalypse it's interesting because one of the things about the road warrior is like Max kind of comes out of nowhere to try and save this town with his skills as a driver, right? Mm -hmm. Basically in road warrior, the town is an oil refinery town in the middle of this kind of deserty area. They're under siege from this bikey gang, which is, you know, has awesome hair and really great butts. And they want to like get out with their gas. Like they need to get away basically. And, and Max, gets them away is sort of the the fundamental thing and the way that he gets them away is by driving what looks like an oil tanker but is actually a decoy full of sand kind of luring the bikey gang away while the rest of the town escapes and 
you know, it's interesting because I think like you're saying, there's this setup of like the people in the town are wearing white and the bikey gang is wearing black, like to put it bluntly, they're kind of two sides of this binary of like good gang, bad gang, you know? (laughs) But Max is not connected to anyone. And there's this scene where he's chosen to drive the rig. He's like, no, thanks. Yeah. Like, he's like, whatever, I'm getting out of here. I don't, I don't owe you anything. And the sort of implied redemption arc of the story is that Max is going to like connect to people and care about people and try and save this town. But he doesn't know he's driving a decoy. He doesn't know that the engine is full of sand and the people who make him drive it do. So they expect him to sacrifice his life, you know, without his consent, really. And that is sort of hinged on this speech that like the leader of the good guys gives him where he's like, you're nothing. You don't care about anything. You don't have a family. You don't have people like you're you're sort of this disconnected guy, which is in a lot of ways, what Mad Max is celebrating is his individualism and his like ability to be the lone survivor, right? Like he's really literally a cop. He's the sheriff guy again. Yeah. But there's something going on there where the good guys are exploiting that because he's not one of them. He's disposable. Mm-hmm. Like they can use his skills to get away. And like the fact that he lives is kind of a fluke of the fact that he's, a, you know, the main character in the movie. It's not <laughs> like... That's an interesting interpretation of that. I I, I hadn't thought about the, the idea that they were exploiting him with that. But I mean, it's really true that they kind of were like, well, you know, whatever happens to him happens. In that moment, I definitely saw Max as being punished by the narrative for trying to go off on his own. Because he tells him he doesn't want to drive the big rig. And then he just drives away. And he immediately gets in a huge car accident as a result of driving off by himself they you know the people are chasing after him oh there he goes and i i at that moment when he said no and they had that big fight i was like max is so screwed he should not do this i could tell that the story was saying don't go off on your own right but it's like intention with the fact that the whole character is based on this lone wolf archetype right right for me it's like What it was important to me was that he did have this moment of like narrative, like justice of this is what happens when you try to go off. It's that if you try to operate on your own strength and power, you will live until someone more strong and more powerful and more numerous than you comes along and you really exist at the mercy of larger groups of people, whether you like it or not. You know, and even that's true with the the Jedi. You know, they took advantage of him. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. But I, but I think that that's kind of the double bind where that exploration in the Road Warrior leaves the film because it doesn't, it can't think its way out of it if it's still committed to this archetype of like Max as Lone Wolf. Right. The movie might end on his laughing face, but he's still been left for dead. He's exploited by either side. Basically, it's just very murky. It's like not clear sort of what the moral message of, of the movie is or what its investment is because it's clearly so excited about this lone wolf character and thinks he's the coolest and has this whole like you know monologue about how he was the man right (laughs) from nowhere (laughs) but at the same time his life is kind of in service of these like ethically privileged in the in the moral universe of the film groups because which are privileged because they're groups but i think in fury road it does something kind of interesting with that tangle of i ideas of what it means to like live a good life as a masculine person through the characters of the war boys because 
like when Joe first tells us about the war boys while he's like giving his speech, we learn that like this idea of half-life war boys is like, on the one hand, obviously it's like a play on the idea that they're all kind of sick from fallout. But on the other hand, it's the fact that because their lives are like limited and short, they're dispensable. So even though they're not individualists, they're like in this complex system. It's all on these rules of masculinity, right? They're really a cult of masculinity, full stop. Yeah. It's pretty unsubtle that that's what's going on with these guys. It's like, live a short, violent, and glorious life. I mean, I feel like instead of dying for, like, this larger spiritual purpose, these characters are dying to, like, impress their dad. Yeah. You know, like, there's this this funny thing about Nux, who, of course, is the character that uh, Mad Max is attached to as a blood bag. And Nux is actually getting a blood transfusion from Max at the beginning of the movie, you know, again, ties Max to the front of his car to like drive out to intercept Furiosa as she's taking this detour to escape. And Nux's problem in the role that he plays in this like cult of white supremacist patriarchy is he he like can't die. He keeps (laughs) trying to have this like glorious masculinity death and he survives. And right. there's there's this like even final moment there with Immortan Joe where he shows up on the side of Immortan Joe's car. They're going like 100 miles an hour. And he's like, take this bullet and shoot Imperator Furiosa. And he's like, okay. He jumps up on the rig, immediately trips and drops a gun. And Immortan Joe goes, mediocre. And it's like, <laughs> oh. It's so amazing. <laughs> that is like one of the best moments in that movie because it's just like it shows how impossible it is to ever earn masculinity yeah. by doing literally anything else than like sacrificing your life. Right, right. So I think by kind of putting that in the center of the movie, it's like finally able to sort of get past the problem of the last three where it was like valuing and centering this this lone wolf masculinity. And so like what this movie does is it like literally puts him in the passenger seat And then, like, it puts Mad Max in the passenger seat and then makes the movie kind of about the deadliness of white supremacist patriarchy. Yeah, I mean, one thing I was going to say, thinking of him in the passenger seat now, I mean, if there is one clear message about guys like that is that they're tools. Yeah, Nux is a tool, Max is a tool. He's a tool. And if we want to connect the dots with Road Warrior, he's definitely a tool in that situation. You know, both mm-hmm. groups are shuffling him back and forth in this way of like, oh, you know, we got to get rid of him because he's doing this. We're going to use him. Now we're going to sacrifice him. And right. in Fury Road 2, I mean, he's this sort of, you know, dangerous guy. But if you can get him on your side, he's really, really useful. And I mean, he's a good driver. And all we do in these movies is drive. So, right. but he's also kind of got this ability to not die because he has a like special, um, quality that i like to call protagonitis (laughs) yep even though he's really kind of not the protagonist in fury road no i mean we don't even hear his name until the very end of the movie i love that i mean i think that was one of the best aspects of fury road is that it's really about furiosa yeah it's 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 really nice when you you get that guy in and you're like okay we have this like lone wolf tool in here that has to be in the movie because we've made this decision to like have the movie be in this this IP, this universe. Um, so he is a tool. Who can we now give him to? Huh. You know, and yeah. we've given him to this group of women who are like, fuck this shit. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think that that's a fair point. And I also think that there is a certain exploration in this movie of like how Max sees himself, too. Yeah, yeah. It begins with all these flashbacks of being unable to save people. Mm-hmm. So it's this sort of like once he conceives of himself as I am here to help people in this world where people are suffering so much, what is breaking the character is that he fails to save them over and over again. Yeah, I I mean, I feel like, again, with, with the idea of a female gaze, it's like asking a question of if you have this guy that has these particular qualities of being a lone wolf and he's really resilient and strong and he's violent and he always wins out in the end and stuff, what then would it be like to be that guy? Mm -hmm. And that's not like the whole movie isn't about that, but that question was asked. And the answer was he would be involved in all of these situations as a tool, as a person that does have a stake in the situation eventually, and not always be able to be strong enough or violent enough or resilient enough to save everybody. Like, of yeah. course, that would be true in this world and in this reality. Yeah. Um, you know, and just like the fact that they were like, okay, let's include that as part of him and his story. That makes so much sense. Yeah, I think I sort of see it in this cultural studies lens of like the end of the Iraq war and this sort of idea of how many more people survived but were really permanently hurt. There were many more people who came back from the Iraq war missing limbs with PTSD, with other injuries. And I think that the movie is in conversation with this going to fight for something and being hurt in the course of that and sort of like how do you how do you see yourself if you see yourself as a hero what is that experience like especially when the narrative of your heroism is flawed you know like when you're fighting for an authoritarian bully or you're fighting for an ideology that is not actually about what it says it's about <laughs> like in the case of the Iraq war um right. and i think it's interesting that so like i think mad max's ptsd in this movie is talking back to that part of the masculine ideology that says it's okay for me to do this to like, like I can be a tool of violence because it's in service of protecting right. someone and sort of just is like, okay, but then there's still a lot of negative impact of that. And that, that sort of gets encapsulated in this line where Nux, who's the war boy is like, wait a minute, I'm not the good guy. Like Immortan Joe's not the good guy. Like, <laughs> what am I doing with my life? And right. <laughs> he's kind of explaining his thought process. Like the, the wives are like, you're a murderer. You kill people. That's what you do. And he says, we are not to blame to her. And then she's like, well, then who killed the world? He, like his face is just, he's super confused. He's like, but I'm not to blame. Like they told me I was absolved. Right. No, I know. I mean, there's obviously set up parallels between Nox and Max. Mm -hmm. Especially because they're literally attached to each other through a big chunk. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like it's really clear that like Nux is the same as Max. The bloodline is like the umbilicus connecting this Absolutely. earlier version of the lone wolf to this exploited boy tool. 100%. <laughs> Ding. <laughs> That's my read and I'm sticking with it. Like, I <laughs> But I mean, I feel like there's a similar character two knocks in road warrior that like strengthens that analysis for me which is this guy that 
It's the guy with the snakes. It's the guy with the gyrocopter. The gyrocopter captain, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that dude is so similar in being this sort of, like, doofy guy that's confused about what to really do with himself. And, yep. you know, Max and him have conflict, but then they end up being both involved in some, like, larger group struggle where they both join the group and help. And I feel like that that character is like this mirror of Max, which is, oh, this is what Max would be if he happens to like be a little bit less effectual, a little bit less violent, a little bit less strong. It's like the same heart is is in both people. It's just this guy happens to have like a different set of skills that are right. less useful in this situation than Max. He's also the only person in the entire universe wearing leggings, which I appreciate. <laughs> didn't he i swear he had on converse all-stars he's got on like converse and um and like basically basically like leisure pants which is you know i have finally come over to the majority of my peers and i also am just wearing leisure pants all day every day well so that guy really did anticipate the apocalypse yes by getting the correct f leisure wear <laughs> Well, it's a big contrast, too, because, like, alas, like, at least this particular COVID apocalypse, aren't you disappointed that pe more people aren't wearing, like, BDSM-adjacent clothes on all those Zoom meetings? Yes. Like yes, now I am. I mean, <laughs> I can hold out hope that everyone who's just calling in is wearing BDSM gear, but, um... That's right. How do right. I feel about that? Full I latex. <laughs> Oh, finally, I can be comfortable at work. Um, <laughs> yes. I wanted to talk about that a little bit because I, I mean, BDSM is definitely used as a cipher for, usually it's the bad guys wearing those clothes in these movies. And there's so much to the visuals of these groups. Um, you were talking about the war boys being literally painted white and talking about this, I'm thinking of the people eater and the bullet farmer. And then the people eater is the guy who runs Gastown. He's a very fat man with holes cut out of his shirt for his nipples. Yeah. And, um, and a metal nose. How did you feel about those characters, Nina? I, I, I have so many reactions to that. Like the nipples sticking out was definitely in the like VDSM outfits thing. But in, with mm -hmm. that character in particular, it's like really used to communicate that like that character is scary and fucked up i had complicated reaction there yeah me too and i think i love fury road but when it comes to queerness in this world i feel like all queerness is coded as aberrant and beastly so like there's not much visual kind of queerness coding in this in this movie but i feel like those nipples are like <laughs> yeah are like the cutaway vision of queerness through his shirt <laughs> i agree i agree like <laughs> I, I have such a fixation on those nipples, and I think part of it is because I'm uncomfortable with those being shown as, like, evil nipples. They are evil nipples? Oh, my God. Um, Yeah, and the callback, I think, for me is to, again, the bad guys in Mad Max Road Warrior are explicitly, there is gay shit going on in that motorcycle gang. 
Like their snake play takes on many levels. <laughs> so the, the main bad guy in Mad Max Road Warrior, is, his name is Wex. He's got the best mohawk of them all. And at the beginning of the movie, he's riding around with this like younger, beautiful, long blonde haired dude on the back of his motorcycle. And okay, Nat, I'm going to, I'm just going to say it. Mad Max Road Warrior has some allusions to the Iliad going on. Um, <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> All right, so my like umbilicus moment with Nox and Max is not even the most like extreme <laughs> illusion that we're doing here. Like I, extreme I'm illusions. <laughs> everything, everything in the Mad Max universe is extreme, including the illusions. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, because they're because it's like, oh, it's a right. It's a siege. There's a walled town. They can't get in because there's a wall. They won't open the gate. So Wex rides up on his motorcycle with his like young man on the back. Right. And and then what happens that makes Wex truly enraged is that the character who's named the feral child throws a boomerang at Wex and misses and hits the young man. And then he dies. And I'm saying got the wall we've got the like very tough second in command <laughs> and we've got this young man that he brings with him fighting who gets killed and then enrages him it's achilles and patroclus oh patroclus no killed by a boomerang patroclus so anyway <laughs> this shows you how homer comes back and bites you in the ass wherever you turn <laughs> and usually we like it um but <laughs> But anyway, that's that's kind of neither here nor there. The point is that the bad guys in Road Warrior are explicitly coded as queer, right? Like, not only are they wearing leather gear, not only do they have full wax jobs on their entire bodies, but they also have beautiful young men on the backs of their bikes. Yeah. Like, Wex is totally, like, a scary-ass gay. Like, I fucking love him. <laughs> I am so obsessed with that guy. Coming back to Fury Road, I guess the nipples feel like a callback to that sort of like scary gay energy. It's like this deviant, yeah, yeah, you know, like twisted, like cruel. There's this sort of association of like cruelty to the self, cruelty to the body. Yeah, that's like a weak payoff for me because we've already seen fucked up sex stuff with Immortan Joe. Yeah, he's a fucking sexual deviant. Yeah, he's keeping women in there with chastity belts that have teeth on them. And then this other guy shows up and there's some implication of a different type of quote unquote sexual deviance. But like, I don't interpret BDSM and nipple clamps as dangerous and threatening in the way that keeping women imprisoned that you can have sex with whenever you want it seems i mean honestly there's also there i mean there's so many things that we aren't even talking about like the women who escape are not the only women imprisoned in the citadel there's also there's an early scene where we're shown a room full of women who are all fat who have their breasts attached to breast pump and they're like pumping milk so yeah. there's this whole like there's this whole whiteness thing that that also connects through milk and through this sort of like twisted idea of purity that Immortan Joe has where he's sort of like trying to grind purity out of women. And of course these fat women are not escaping in the truck. So it's definitely not a perfect vision of feminist liberation. Yeah. And you know, there's actually a really interesting moment. I had forgotten this was in the movie, but you know, there's a lot of stuff that happens in Fury Road that takes place in this narrow canyon. 
um, there's right. this bottleneck. So it's a site of conflict and confrontation because everyone has to fit through this narrow, narrow passage. And the movie uses that to generate tension multiple times and to set up a lot of payoff for the like extended chase scenes and so forth that goes on. But there is one part in the movie when they're passing through there and a bunch of rocks come down blocking all of Morton Joe's war boys and all of these different people in cars who are chasing after Furiosa and Max on a war rig. And, you know, and Morton Joe is enraged and he's like, we have to go get my property. And the bullet farmer and the people eater are like having this like really short moment where they look at each other and they're kind of being like, this is a lot of resources that we're using up. And it's all over this. I think they actually call it like a family dispute or something. Yeah, they literally do. Yeah, they call it a family dispute. And like that also felt like a super like queer moment to me where it was like, is it really necessary for us to sacrifice the lives of the people that turn the gears of the societies that we all run out here in this apocalyptic land because of your like fight over these women? Yeah, totally, totally. I love that. I mean, I think that those characters are holding a lot and not very much at the same time. It's like, yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess if the only utopian vision is familial, like to be able to have a family, right? Like Joe's idea of family is fucked up. Yep. And these guys are also fucked up, but they're fucked up because they don't even believe in family at all, right? They just like the bullet farmer just sows death and the people eater just eats people. So they're like, why even bother going through the pretense of having a family? I was like really psyched that that was at least nodded to because i'm yeah. just like why did everybody agree to go after these people like totally, totally. you know I, I actually i think it's a really really great point and really interesting and i i feel like what you're pointing to also is isn't is an interesting and true thing which is that the bad guy coded as queer is often you know, kind of coded as anti-children and anti-future, right? Like, I mean, even just even thinking about like some of the stuff we've covered, like the sort of evil version of Joel in The Last of Us is that guy, David, who, you know, is a literal cannibal and also a pedophile. And in a lot of these sort of dystopian imaginaries, when the good guy and the protagonist in the future that's being imagined is really exactly the same as the bad guy and and the future that's being imagined by the bad guy with the only difference being like the good guy is trying to save a child, then, you know, it's the bad guy's anti-childness that sort of is coding him as evil. Mm-hmm. And and so that sort of sexual deviance gets aligned with anti-childness, which of course is like a critique that a lot of queer theorists have brought to the feet of culture over and over again. Kind of Lee Edelman being kind of the person who's most associated with this is like, not wanting children does not make us evil and anti-community. <laughs> like It doesn't mean that, that we aren't for other people. So I think the movie is doing that thing of mm-hmm. like associating sexual deviance and not like caring about family with bad guys. But it's also at the same time because Immortan Joe is, the, is with them and he is so obsessed with children and with with family. <laughs> yeah. Kind of throwing a little bit of a wrench in the binariness of that ideology by being like, well, for real, dude. I don't know. It's so interesting to think about it. I mean, he is just sort of like this vessel and we were saying he's a tool and 
he's a tool of the narrative in a way and being this empty person that doesn't really have a past, doesn't have an agenda. And he's just, he exists in this sort of state of ennui and he happens to pass through and help people when it's convenient and when he's drawn in enough. From a queer point of view, there's an aspect of it that's appealing because you don't have to watch him have this like, dramatic, annoying, oppressive relationship with the female love interest. Totally. I'm. There's room for so many more car crashes and explosions because we don't have to watch that shit. Yeah. And what's really exciting to me about these movies is something a little bit like what's so exciting to me about John Waters' movies. They're just so over the top. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I love that aspect too. And we didn't talk about uh, Thunderdome that much, but I mean, that is so on display in that movie. But it's so much fun to exult in that camp and that elevation and that like unapologetic level of performance and display and excessiveness, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's an, a funny thing, like to use the word camp to describe these movies, but, like they are, they're super campy, but I, there's a part of me that thinks like maybe most angry men on the internet don't know that they're camp yeah gosh i've thought a lot about this myself and i i have something to add there i think about angry men on the internet Mm. um and I, i you know i've had many occasions to think about this because i run in a lot of nerd circles and the nerd circles i run in you know there's a lot of queer folks there but it's a space where angry internet men sometimes also exist. And I think one of the things that is characteristic of that particular group of people is not their misogyny, it's their isolation. And their misogyny stems from a misplaced blame onto women. And what's interesting about that is There are a lot of nerds who are not misogynistic, but share with queers the sense of isolation and aloneness. Right. And I see how communities of, you know, straight, cis, white, male nerds and queers actually often coexist harmoniously because they can connect on feeling like for various reasons they're outsiders in society. And the result of it is, you know, hegemony and patriarchy, which for a lot of men, renders them totally isolated and alone and even untouchable Mm. if they don't fit the dominant ideal of masculinity, which we all know is impossible and damaging and toxic to everybody. You know, it's just so interesting to think about that because Mad Max has this isolated, alone character at the center of it. And he doesn't get a girlfriend. There isn't a romance. He's not avenging his mom. He is totally alone. And the cause of it is the fact that none of these societies that he comes up against can accommodate him or connect with him. And he can't accommodate them and connect with them. Yeah. And instead, you know, kind of as we were saying, the relationship that society has toward him is use. Absolutely. You know, and we've talked about how there is this kind of confused perspective in these movies around BDSM and markers of queerness, and then also tyranny and fascism and oppression. 
Yeah. And, you know, that harkens back earlier to this confused perspective of the loner as to what is the source of the pain and isolation that resulted in this state of being that, you know, it's anti-human to be isolated like that. No yeah. one likes it. Yeah. And I, I feel like Fury Road is like this stepping stone moment. Like in Road Warrior, we have these bullying, abusive bikies, but then they're also super queer and that just seems like a mess because you're like there's something bad about them and then there's something like freaking awesome about them that I love and the movie was like morally confused kind of about what of that is contributory to Max's state of isolation and loneliness yeah I mean in a lot of ways misogyny is really just the most openly acknowledged form of that misdirection too because it's also colonialism it's also white supremacy and those don't really ever get kind of pointed up for how problematic they are in these movies. I think, you know, one of the things about the Mad Max movies that is very striking, everyone in the Mad Max universe is white with very few exceptions. And the movies are constantly referencing different bits of indigenous culture, including Aboriginal Australian culture, but also indigenous American cultures. And yet there are no indigenous or Aboriginal people in the movies themselves. It appears that indigenous people have disappeared from this landscape. But there's a boomerang in Mad Max Road Warrior. There's like a bunch of folks in Beyond the Thunderdome that have these sort of like headdresses that are kind of references to kind of Plains Indian, Lakota, Dakota. And then in Fury Road, there's this sort of story of Furiosa's taking as a child. You know, we were talking with Wob about residential schools in Canada. And of course, that happened in the US too. And that happened in Australia. So indigenous and Aboriginal children being stolen from their homes and forcibly adopted or fostered into white families or put in residential schools, abused, punished for practicing their languages. And Furiosa's return is kind of coded as the return of an Aboriginal child, right? She's abducted and she has this, you know, she has this whole speech of like where where she's like, you know, I'm the clan of this. And then there's this scene where they kind of make this gesture of mourning about her mother who is dead. Right. And she sort of sees it and she has all of this emotion and she sort of mimics this gesture. You think about like kids being denied their cultural practices and languages and this sort of like, can I fit back into this culture? So it's very resonant, but it's also deeply appropriative, right? Because there are no indigenous people or Aboriginal people in this film. So it's like capitalizing on indigenous suffering without ever speaking explicitly to it or having any Aboriginal people in the movie. We were saying that this is sort of not located anywhere. And Mm -hmm. I sometimes think that movies try or writers who want to appropriate certain themes, certain kinds of stories, will set it in a non-place so that it's like, oh yeah, but like that's not really in a certain location or whatever. And setting it in sort of nowhere does not let you out of the obligation to consider are you appropriating the suffering of indigenous people in the way you want to tell the story of your imaginary characters in an imaginary world yeah absolutely and and i want to say that i'm drawing on an article from the blog no award it's not getting updated anymore but there's some really awesome content on there it's written by queer Australian folks, and it's really rad. Um, So it's an article called Mad Max Appropriation Road um, by Stephanie. And you were talking about like setting it nowhere. And I feel like that's really apt because the other thing that I was kind of really excited to talk about in Mad Max 
is this this idea of cars, right? And so I just want to bring in another voice to the conversation, which is this article called The Car and Australian Governance by Kieran Tranter. And it's kind of, it's talking about the ways cars work in Mad Max. And you're talking about like this um, setting of the movie Nowhere, again, kind of points back to this idea of like terra nullis, which is sort of fundamental to the idea of settler colonialism, right? That blank slate land that is nowhere. And- And one of the really interesting questions that this article asks, so it points to like how cars in Australian culture are deeply connected to masculinity and partly they're connected to this sort of like idea of being able to control the the scary Australian landscape that is in some places, you know, so dangerous, so empty, so desertified. And the car can make these vast spaces of hostile landscape disappear because of its speed. So it offers this protection and safety by moving you quickly through this frightening landscape. But the really interesting line to me from this article that I wanted to kind of bring into our conversation in particular, this is a quote, the wastelands of Mad Max have their origins in the failure of the internal combustion engine to ground a sustainable civilization. Mm. And I just found that quote like so very thought provoking because of course, I mean, the internal combustion engine is along with large-scale corporate agriculture, is literally destroying the planet. Right. A question that I have kind of coming out of that quote, like if the movie is is sort of like interested in the failure of the internal combustion engine to ground a sustainable civilization, like what kind of people do cars make? Such an interesting question. <laughs> On the surface, I think you would think Mad Max was like, cars are awesome, but... It's obviously more complicated than that. Tons of people suffer and die as a result of these car chases. Cars are shown to be like people's lifelines and also like the way people attack each other and do violence and, you know, again, waste resources. Yeah. Of course, there are tons of movies about cars and usually cars are just a symbol of superiority and muscle and masculinity. And I mean, I think that that's inherent in some aspects of what it means to own a car. It's a symbol of power. Yeah. It is about that power and freedom and it does let you leave, which, you know, that was actually another point that was made in this article. I think the way that he put it was he was talking about the the landscape in um, Mad Max Road Warrior and, and the desert in that movie is just an obstacle. And this is true in Fury Road too. I mean, I think the, the, the landscape in Fury Road is much more dynamic in terms of like, you know, the way that the canyon matters, the way that the mud matters. So there is more agency from the landscape too. But the landscape is not something that you are connected to. It's what you get through in order to get away in these movies it's not even necessarily somewhere you're specifically going it's just somewhere else and that connects deeply to the idea of settler colonialism again like this idea of a relationship to the land that's just extractive and you're just here because you're here is a sort of implication and i just you know thinking about the question of what kind of people do cars make yeah people can leave you know (laughs) thinking about what kind of people do cars make my experience of car ownership and car culture is you know you can always leave But what that means is you never actually really feel like you're anywhere because you don't really have to engage with the landscape in order to get out of it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the other thing that's occurring to me is that it's really gendered, too. Like cars are both. And and I think this is actually something that's kind of worked through symbolically in the film, too, because I'm thinking about the ways that like the war boys are 
like riding in these windowless sort of buggies that don't have any real outside carapace. Whereas the war rig is this like very enclosed. There are compartments even within the main compartment of the war rig, like armored vehicle. And I'm thinking about the ways that cars can make people feel safe because they're inside this this armor. Right. Moving through space and like specifically thinking about the ways that like female bodied and queer people and all kinds of people who who might not feel safe walking around just in their bodies like the car can be this added layer of safety i mean it can be a lot of things right like obviously driving while black is a site of real danger yeah um so there's like multiple layers of meaning but the car doesn't do that sort of safety thing for the war boys (laughs) Like they're just hurtling along with no protection with their faces in the wind. (laughs) But the women are like inside, you know, it's like there's kind of some gender dynamics of what cars mean. Right. For the women, it's this tank that surrounds them and allows them to sort of move through hostile space while being attacked by men from all sides. (laughs) From their doorless cars that they just like lean out of and throw a flaming stick at you. Like... Keep your flaming sticks to yourself. Or in Road Warrior, a literal snake. (laughs) They just throw a snake in there and you're like, get the snake out. Gosh, this is my femininity tank. I don't want any of your. Yeah, I I think about the ways, too, that just as it isolates you from the landscape, though, and keeps you safe, it also isolates you from other people. Like, Like, I don't know, I'm thinking about the experience of being a person in a car coming up at an intersection where there are you know unhoused folks who are asking for money right and the sort of like act of rolling up your window mm-hmm. in order to not engage in like the way that you can kind of make a literal barrier around yourself where you're kind of like not actually in the space sure i mean i, I just thinking about that idea and how you are isolated from people when you're driving through somewhere as opposed to if you're walking or even riding a bike it makes me think of, um, Nina, have you heard of hostile architecture? No. So, you know, I actually I was tipped off to the existence of this way back when I was working as a writer for um, a prison justice project. The woman who is the main person who runs that organization has a background in architecture. And she started talking to me about the way prisons are designed to give people a particular feeling. Um, yeah, it, they are totally not just utilitarian, um, right? And I learned later that there are aspects of what is called hostile architecture in cities, and what this is is making it so unhoused people, for example, can't sit or lay somewhere, right? Like the fucking those fucking bars in the middle of benches, that exactly. Make it so that you can't lie down, yeah, exactly. And you can see some really egregious scary examples of this um people literally like putting spikes in ledges so people don't sit there like yeah just really ugly designs that are just anti-human yeah and i think that cars and car culture creates something like that where the architecture is not around people being able to interact with each other it's isolating because it's toward this other purpose 
I think that we talked a little bit about this with mm-hmm. Wendigo infrastructure. The idea there was like a Wendigo infrastructure is this like all consuming, all progressing, kind of in service of transporting oil around, having nothing to do with like sustaining life and, you know, supporting the communities of people who live in that infrastructure. And- right. It's, it's an infrastructure that's built for commodities rather than for the sustenance of life. Absolutely. There's a way in which like the Citadel itself as this sort of tower structure with its own water source with an elevator that goes up and down like you can't get in unless they let you in. Like it's kind of a, another car. <laughs> it's like what cars do for it's like another like female gendered car. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like there's a way in which it's another kind of safe vehicle for being inside. That was something I actually had lots of feelings about at the very end of the movie. You know, we haven't even talked about like the denouement <laughs> of yeah. the movie is that they are originally planning to like try and escape across the 160 days ride across the salt flats, see what's out there over the desert. And instead, Max is like, well, the Citadel is undefended. They've just been chasing you. Like, why don't we just go back and take it over for ourselves? In the end, you know, Furiosa and the Vavalina and the wives are all kind of rising on this elevator <laughs> up to this this place of safety. Of course, there's this unbelievable moment where you get to see Furiosa standing on that elevator and she's rising up. And you're like, right. fuck yes, like she's so awesome. And now she's going to be the authoritarian boss of this. And <laughs> like, thank God they got rid of the like exploitative, horrifying sexual stuff that Immortan Joe was doing. But Oh no, is this white feminism? <laughs> it's girl boss feminism at the helm. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is. Oh, no. Like, <laughs> it's true. We really need, like, the one, the, the, the next Charlie's Theron vehicle, which is going to be. Oh, God, I don't even want this movie. I'm like, which is going to be Charlize Theron, like, learning to be intersectional. <laughs> like, I don't want that movie. <laughs> like... <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I mean, uh, but like, it, I mean, it is interesting because like you were saying, like, everyone in the movie is white, except for a few people. And even among the masses who are trying to catch the water when they pour it out of that like waterfall. Yeah. Even most of them are white. (laughs) Like we're on an imaginary planet where it's all white people. Um, I guess that's like the planet of like mainstream media. (laughs) (laughs) But when I think about like her rising up into the top, I'm kind of like, we already have a white supremacy problem. And all of those people who are trained in the cult of white supremacy are still in the Citadel. They have all the war boys in there. The whole society is a problem. Having a different Mm -hmm. figurehead is not going to change the fact that it is set up in this highly unequal way. Like, I mean, I have a lot of confidence in her in like trying to like figure it out. But yeah, because she's fucking rolled. But she's awesome. But like, she's going to have to really do some shit to fix this beyond just getting rid of a Morton Joe. Yeah, totally. She is. And I think the movie is not considering the future of that narrative and it's not considering the work that it takes. Like, and, and I think it's not considering the infrastructure. I mean, that's, you know, sort of brings us back to the way that the Citadel is set up. Like, you know, some people come up on the elevator with her. There's this sort of symbolic, you know, 
<laughs> there's this like there's like some token wretched people <laughs> who are like allowed up on the elevator but you know there's only so many it can carry so it's also about this sort of the ways that the infrastructure of that society are set up so some people live in the citadel and some people live in the dirt <laughs> like but one of the sort of questions that leaves me with is like what is the dystopian vision of mad max and each movie gets somewhere further in terms of like trying to think about even having a dystopian vision beyond just like room room bang but I'm not sure how, like, how coherent it is even, you know? It's not coherent. I mean, you get this vibe of, like, apocalypse and dystopia are important, but set pieces and these particular ideas and images. And we hit up on the limitation that it's about, like, the moment of change, the moment of conflict, the moment of violence, because Max is the center of the story. Mm -hmm. It can't go past that into how do you form a just society because a guy like that like doesn't really play a role in that process of healing and community building. And so the movie right. just sort of like ends when he like disappears back into the crowd and right. goes on his wanderings of, again, it's like protagonitis, find another thing to do. You lose all your blood and then you don't even get a salad. That was another thing. I'm like, why don't I, I want to see a scene where they give him food? Because like if he's supplying blood, they should be giving him I a know. lot of food. They give you crackers at the blood bank. Jesus. Yeah. Like he's his blood is going to run dry if they don't give him a sandwich in there. Seriously. So, okay, I had one more question. It's a, a super quick one, maybe. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious, like, like your real life apocalyptic outfit is like leisure pants. But like, what is your like, like leather daddy apocalypse outfit if you were in the like <laughs> Mad Max universe? <laughs> okay. I mean, are we talking, are we talking aesthetics or are we talking pragmatism here? Because black is not a good thing to go to the <laughs> desert, unfortunately. You would be just so despicably hot. <laughs> I would not be caught dead in white leather. <laughs> white leather is no, like, I, I mean, I guess you could do the, like, Jedi thing with the shoulder pads, but. <laughs> I do not want to be one of those people. Um, so, what's my Mad Max apocalyptic outfit? I also am a big fan of, um, there's, like, a showman in Beyond Thunderdome. You know, he's, like, the host in Cabaret, but, yes. <laughs> but it's the apocalypse. Yes. And he's got this really sweet sort of Count Dracula thing going on with these massive shoulder pads underneath, like, a giant black cape. That dude is so awesome. Oh, and then he goes, it's dying time or something. Like, Yeah, there's yeah. jazz hands involved. <laughs> <laughs> he tap dances out of the Thunderdome. Yeah. Oof. Oh, but, okay. I feel like you should be fully granted a cape. Like, so maybe it's Max's jacket with, like, one arm on, one arm off in Mad Max Road Warrior, but with the gyrocopter's leisure pants, leather boots, and a cape. Yeah. Solid. <laughs> How about you, Nat? <laughs> I just want, like, some boots that go all the way up, and then there are, like, really awesome knee pads. Yeah. You know, like, metal knee pads with, like, rivets. Mm -hmm. um and the boots are just like serious and then because people have hangy things hanging down i would i'm trying to think like what the right like item for this is but like i just want a cell phone with like a spike stabbed through it 
because like <laughs> my future <laughs> is this about your freedom from the technological uh yeah absolutely free of social media free of surveillance i'm free of constant being tethered to because like the internet is dead at this point we can assume and in the apocalypse like i'm the guy that like cut the internet off i think we've just hit on your mad max universe bikey gang name which is phone spiker phone spiker yes and sleeveless you know sleeveless top and just like pointless things around my like muscular muscular arms like cuffs and a hat. Okay, cool. I want to throw in just like a shout out to the belts in Mad Max, which are festooned with all sorts of tools. So that is the one other place where queer culture comes through in these movies is there are many carabiners. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> so after when we like get on our motorcycle and ride away, you are going to have to ride on the back of the motorcycle because your cape is going to flow out. Well, us. I don't know. Okay, yes, but Wex <laughs> is constantly gesturing, and his back of motorcycle dude just has to duck. Like, there's one moment when he's like sitting there trying to look beautiful with his blonde hair flowing in the breeze, and Wex just like basically almost elbows him in the face, and he's just like, "Beauty duck." Beauty duck. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll be the back of the motorcycle guy, and I'm like, "Beauty duck." <laughs> get our own motorcycle mat <laughs> no you're like and we have to be on the same motorcycle and i'm just apocalyptic scarcity we only get one motorcycle <laughs> i can ride in the back you're right about the cape <laughs> how about how about a sidecar <laughs> no dude that's undignified <laughs> This has been Queers at the End of the World. Next time on Queers at the End of the World, we're branching off of the Vuvulina's bag of seeds and skulls to talk with Delessel and George Warren, who runs both food and language sovereignty projects for the Catawba Nation. We'll be talking about language education, growing food, making art, and being queer in the rural South, plus all sorts of delightful things. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa, who you can find for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash queers at the end of the world. The music for this episode was La Fin des Ericots by Tintamare. You can find us at queerworlds.com or at queerworlds podcast on Instagram. If you enjoyed the show, we would really, really appreciate it if you'd rate and review us. It helps people find us and it lets us know that you're out there listening. And tell a friend who you think will enjoy it. That's by far the best way for folks to find out about the podcast. Part of the point of all this is for us to talk to our community, so we'd love to hear back from you. Get in touch with us at queerworldspodcast at gmail.com. All right. Good luck out there, dear hearts. Oh, goggles. We got we we need goggles. We definitely need goggles and hopefully we have like wrenches and just like That's all on the belt. Do we have like one snake? <laughs>
So it's like a nipple clamp. <laughs> the snake is a nipple clamp. <laughs> oh, it's just a little garter snake. <laughs> it's tiny little tea. 